Hello listeners, welcome to UniTalks, our brand's new podcast. Here at the Institute of Art and Ideas, we've developed UniTalks alongside the Brilliant Club. It's a podcast designed to unlock university for the next generation of thinkers. Across the series, you're going to be hearing from eight A-level students interviewing eight different academics from across a wide range of subjects. They'll be discussing academic life and their cutting-edge research. And that's not all because in the second half, our admissions agony ants at King's College London will answer your questions about uni from how to choose a degree course to life on campus and how you can receive financial support. This first episode is hosted by Tom from Hartlepool, who visited Edinburgh to interview Professor Sir Ian Wilmot about his research into stem cells and cloning. Hi, I'm Thomas and welcome to the Uni Talks podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. So my name's Thomas Lowry, I'm 16 years old and I'm from a place called Hartlepool which is in the northeast of England. We're in Edinburgh at the minute, we've just left Edinburgh train station and we're on our way to Edinburgh University to the Centre of Regenerative Medicines to interview Sarine Wilmot. At the minute we're in the taxi, there's beautiful scenery all around. It is quite cold but in my eyes I'd like to live in Edinburgh one day. I'm feeling a little bit nervous, this will be the first interview where I get to truly speak about my passion for science. However, I've done quite a few interviews before in my time, but not with a world-leading academic before, who's done so much before, like cloning an adult sheep to successfully create Dolly the sheep, and the stem cell research that he's doing right now, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, first impressions, stunned, fabulous architecture. It was a kind of lovely light, just right above us. So, at the minute we're outside the laboratories. It's all technical, all advanced equipment, lots of computerized equipment, microscopes. And as far as I can tell, it looks like a few lab technicians and scientists are insulating some form of test tube, I believe it is, ready to do an experiment, I suppose. I mean, I don't quite know what's actually going on in there. One of the main groups in this lab is investigating multiple sclerosis. So I'm Robin Morton. I'm the Science Communication Manager at the Medical Research Council Centre for Gender Medicine. They cover all sorts of therapeutic areas, diseases of the brain, blood, liver. So, for example, we've got people who work on leukaemia and cancers. Fantastic. It's fantastic. I'd like to introduce Professor Sir Ian Wilmot, who I'm going to be interviewing. So, Professor... What do you find enjoyable about being a world-leading academic? <laughs> Sighing with relief and thinking how lucky I was. There's a lot of, of that comes into success in most things in life, I think. 
good fortune. I think the actual answer to your question is that one of the excitements of science is that things change. You're not, you're not doing the same thing for terribly long. And so you get new results from other people, new ideas from your own crew as to what to do. And uh, I've traveled fantastically, you know, enormous number of countries and labs I've visited. In this summer, I've been and lectured in Berlin, Lisbon, Belfast. So it's a fantastic opportunity to travel, which was one of my ambitions. Yeah. If you go far enough back, I actually wanted to be a sailor, but I'm colorblind and uh, you're not allowed to steer a boat if you can't distinguish red and green. And so I sort of looked around for other ways of going around the world. And that's when agriculture came in. So to now find that I can go different places because of being known through my research is a great outcome. See, that's brilliant, that is. I mean, you didn't let the fact of not being allowed to go into the Royal Navy because you are colourblind let your spirits go down and you found an alternative. We are in the centre of re regenerative medicine. And I was wondering, what type of work are you and your colleagues currently working on at the moment? So the objective of people working in this building is to understand diseases and then with that new knowledge to work out new therapies for them for the first time. So for many of us, include, including me, we're using the new stem cells that were produced as a result of the cloning research. And I've been part of a group studying diseases known in this country as motor neuron disease, when people slowly lose control of their muscles and can't walk, have difficulty with their hands, and ultimately they die because they suffocate, they stop breathing. I think that's a horrible prognosis to face, you know. In this country, it might be known as Jimmy Johnson's disease. Jimmy was a winger for Celtic when they won the European Cup in 1967, and he also died because of motor neuron disease. And he was known as Jinky Johnson because he you know, was very light on his feet. I had the privilege of meeting him. He and I were much the same age. And he was on a bed that was the same height as this table in front of us, unable to move anything lower than his neck. Diseases like this reflect the presence of cells which have either died or are not functioning pro properly, uh, like uh, Parkinson's disease, like some forms of heart failure, some forms of blindness. There are hundreds of them, hundreds. And if a lab has the ability to produce those cells that are damaged from the patient, then we can study it. I think what this means is that the, you know, people think of Dolly as indicating a way of making an exact copy. Because people learned from the results of the experiment to produce these new stem cells, over a period of time, people will probably produce new treatments for most of these degenerative diseases because of the basic science which was done here. Now, I know my A-level biology specification, we will be studying um, cloning and stem cell research in year 13. So I was wondering, how long did it take you and your team to prepare to clone an adult sheep to successfully create Dolly the sheep? About five years. About five years. And did you and your team face any ethical challenges to do with the project? They're there all the time. If you're going to work with animals, you, you always have to think, you know, can I justify doing this to an animal on the basis of what we're going to learn or what we hope to, to learn? The, the thing that became different was when we cloned an adult, people began to, to talk about doing it to people. And we obviously had to think about what our view, because we function as a team and you know, we have to put out an institute view on these things. And none of the group approved of the, the idea of cloning an, a person. We couldn't think of a reason why you would do it, which we would support. What are your thoughts and what are your opinions on human cloning? Do you think it's right or do you think it's ethical? 
I mean, I think a lot of the early thoughts about cloning were fairly sort of careless and, and inaccurate. And you, in the end, you need to be extremely careful. What we're talking about usually when we talk about clones is taking a cell from somebody and making essentially a genetically identical twin, but different in age of, of, of the original. And, and then you do have this anxiety about that s second person is going to expect it to be like the, the, the original. And that was our concern, that that's not an appropriate thing to do to a, to a child. You know, if you think of a clone of David Beckham, for example, they'll expect him to be a brilliant football player, uh, which he may or may not be. But it's that expectation imposed upon a clone which I think is unacceptable. You might use cloning for a different reason, not to produce somebody and might not even do that. Or you might manipulate embryos, let's say, not cloning, but manipulate embryos. And if you were doing manipulation in order to be able to correct a genetic disease, say, then I would think that was a good idea. And, you know, the ethics becomes different, even if you use a similar technique. And very often, public analysis is not accurate enough to distinguish between those two. So part of my research into this was I watched a video you were talking about mitochondrial disease, so how you are able to exchange nuclei of the cells. So the person with this mitochondrial disease will no longer have the mitochondrial disease because you've exchanged nuclei. Do you think people are worried about that as well? Do you think there are a lot of ethical issues behind that? There's certainly, you know, if you put up a public question, there is anxiety about that. I have to say I can't see any, and it seems to me to be a fantastic opportunity. I'd agree. The diseases which are caused by errors in mitochondria, many of them are horrendous. Not to do something to prevent that happening would, would be outrageous in my, my view. It's taken a long time, but that has now come through into legally accepted procedure in this country anyway. Doesn't it take quite a while as well? Isn't the success rate um, quite slim when you're doing something like that? But I could believe that it would be, yes. Because you need to get things coincident. You need to get eggs at particular stages at a particular time if it's going to work. Do you think that we are scientifically and medically advanced enough to carry out such procedures, even if those procedures uh, are going to take a long time and they might be quite gruelling? I think that there'd be an inclination to try, wouldn't it, just because the reward is so great. But, but you do have to be very careful. You know, you have to think of everybody concerned. In that particular procedure, you're asking a woman to donate eggs to be used by another couple, as well as the family themselves, to go through all these procedures. So I think you need to be very, very careful to explain these very carefully. Now that we've spoke about that and the different types of diseases, like the mitochondrial disease, that can hopefully can be cured. I was wondering what made you change fields and start researching about stem cells and so moving away from cloning? I mean, the most important thing from the Dolly experiment was actually not to produce an adult clone, but because that shows that you can take a cell from an adult and treat it in particular ways and it'll go all the way back to being an embryo, which, which can grow normally. So what that made lots of biologists do was to think, well, maybe there are other ways of doing that reprogramming. And two groups working independently, one in Japan and one in Wisconsin in the States, came forward with very similar methods which do that. If you put, one of them uses four and I think the other uses five or six specific proteins from the egg, it turns the functioning of the uh, nucleus back to being that of a very early cell. Um, so that then meant that without cloning, we could produce stem cells from particular people. And that's incredibly useful. 
Do you think that at this moment in time we are close to a, another scientific breakthrough, breakthrough, whether it be in your field and, um, or another type of field within a different type of science? Oh yes. I mean there were people at the beginning of the last century who thought um, we were coming to the end of science. We nearly knew everything. So, uh, and that's just so untrue. There's so much more to learn and there'll be so many things to come from the, the, the new knowledge. I mean, most people, even when they're thinking of a response to a result, think of uh, Archimedes jumping out of the bath and saying, yippee! But unfortunately, things sometimes take a long time. I mean, one of the very frustrating things with the stem cells, for example, let's say that somebody in this building here has got some new cells which might be useful for treating some form of blindness, say, or something like that. They'll first of all have to test these in animals. They'll probably want to do a lot of analysis of the cells just in a dish. And only when you got through that, which will take a number of years, can you contemplate putting them into people. That will have to be done over a period of time to build up the numbers without putting too many people at risk. The patients would have to be monitored for a long time, as long as they lived perhaps, in order to see that there were no long-term disadvantages. So it may take a long time for them to really become mature ideas that can be used, but there are a lot of things still to come, yeah. And I was wondering, um, do you have any top tips for studying at an undergraduate level and what it's like um, preparing to study at an undergraduate level? I think you should always choose a subject that you not only can do but are interested in so you can maintain the effort that will be necessary because you know, you're only just beginning when you get there. Work, there's no, no ducking the issue, it will involve hard work. Be ambitious. If you get the chance to take an internship, in the area that you're interested in, do it, uh, because it, it will get you to know people and actually see things in the lab. The towns I grew up in didn't have universities, it just wasn't in the, the air as it were, it wasn't, wasn't an idea. But when I got to the university I began to really enjoy the research and thought it would be good to get some practical experience and so that's when I went to, to Cambridge and was very fortunate because I met the man who I later went and did a PhD with, Professor Chris Porch, who was a great mentor. I mean, all the time I think the, the advice is be ambitious. You know, if you hesitate, can I do this? Just go back and try harder and keep, and keep going. Yes, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you my A-levels. <laughs> they were bad. But look where you've come now. You've worked your way up. You've got your PhD. You're now a world-renowned academic leader. Um, all the research that you've done, in particular with Dolly the Sheep, that's very famous, as I'm sure you'll know. So what's your ambition? Well, my ambition is, of course, to finish my A-level studies and then go off to do an undergraduate degree in either biomedical sciences or nursing. And with that degree, depending on what I come out with, what result I come out with, I'm thinking about going to study medicine at university because medicine is a, is a true passion of mine. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Great ambitions. Well, I've just interviewed Professor Sir Ian Wilmot and I was talking to him about his uh, previous field, which was cloning, so Dolly the Sheep. Surprisingly, I thought five years was quite a short amount of time. I thought more work would have had to be put into it and I was quite surprised when he mentioned that it only took five years. The highlight of that interview, well, I've got two bits really. The scientific side of things, because love science, 
and the top tips about university because I mean still a little bit nervous about uni but some of my nerves have now gone down so when you said about being ambitious that like my nerves went from here like from up the top of my head to down below my head so now I've got a more comfortable idea of how university works and about um, always being ambitious and if something doesn't work the first time you've always got you've always got more time to try. So we're outside of the National Museum of Scotland. I'm going to take a tour around the museum and we're hopefully going to see Dolly the Sheep. That rocket looks cool. I can see skeletons and scientific equipment on display. Some form of old lighthouse, I believe. Like the lighthouse shell, I'm going to call it. Oh, looks very interesting. Oh, there's a nice plane. You know, I wanted to be a pilot at one point. Now I want to be a scientist. <gasps> there she is. Oh, wow. So we're now in the part of the museum where we get to see Dolly the sheep. Wow. It's nice to meet Dolly in person. So here we've got Dolly the sheep. Dolly is the most famous sheep in the world. She was the first mammal cloned from an adult, from adult cell in 1996. Uh, Dolly was only the live lamb from 277 eggs used in cloning. So it does show how the success rate can affect how you can clone such a magnificent beast. And back to what we were talking about in the interview with Professor Sir Ian Wilmer earlier on. Cloning Dolly wasn't just necessarily about, oh, we are going to clone an animal. It was more about the stem cell research side of things. So how they could incorporate it into um, medical advancements. I mean. When I was doing GCSE with, I'm sure with quite a lot of other students, we just got told that Dolly was a cloned animal. We didn't really get taught about the science behind it. And now that I've interviewed Professor Say and Wilmer, and now that I get to see Dolly the sheep, it gives me a true insight of how cloning actually works and how it has changed medicine for the better. Next, you'll be hearing from our missions agniants, Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both work at King's College in London in the admissions department. Paul is the director of admissions and Anne-Marie is the director of winding participation. They'll be answering questions that you sent in about applying to university. Hello, I'm Anne-Marie. I'm the Director of Widening Participation at King's College London. What that means is I help young people to go to university. I studied English Literature at university. Before that, I grew up in a town called Doncaster and I was the first in my family to go to university. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm the Director of Admissions at King's College London. I'm responsible for all of the programmes that we have here at King's, which is a total of about 90,000 applications each year. We're your Admissions Agony Ants. You went to join in. I am. You've only said it twice. <laughs> Why aren't you joining in? It's really embarrassing. We are the Admissions Agony Ants. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about picking an institution and a course. Do you want to do that, Paul, or shall I? You can do that. Okay, Paul, first question. 
What happens if you don't know what you want to do when you go to university? The answer is not to panic. You've got plenty of time to do really good research and pick the right subject for you. One of the options is to consider a broad programme, so you could consider a liberal arts degree, where actually you don't need to decide until you get to university. Or perhaps you could look at studying in Scotland, where that gives you the opportunity to study three subjects from the beginning and through most of your degree programme. So I think the answer is to not panic. My main advice to this uh, person would be to really explore what you're interested in. Maybe you're doing your GCSEs or your A-levels. Um, find out what you're really enjoying. Think about the books, the ideas, the experiments that have really got you excited about learning and pursue those and explore them. The other thing to say is that we've got loads of subjects at university that maybe you've never even experienced at school. We've got lots of um, degrees on offer. There are over 50,000 available at over 400 universities. So you will find something that really appeals to you. One of the things that lots of people forget is that we have degrees that combine different subject areas. A really famous example is a degree called PPE, which stands for Politics, Philosophy and Economics. Or maybe you'd like to put together some physics and philosophy. So there's lots of combinations of degrees out there the main thing is to start exploring nice and early. Okay, let's move on to the next question. So, Paul, how do you decide what university to go to when there are so many to choose from? Well, I think, first of all, it comes back to subject and about making sure that the subject that you want to study is offered by that university, then it's a good university for that subject areas. But we also know that there's practicalities as well. People often have commitments, that might be their part-time job, it might be family commitments, either to their parents or, or uh, children of their own. And so often many students uh, actually look to universities in the local area. One of the other things that people often think about is not just the academic content, but it's other things that are part important to their life. It might be sport, music, drama, making sure that there are the facilities for you to carry on with those all-important extracurricular activities, as well as the academic programme. Yeah, so there's around 400 university higher education institutions in the UK today. Uh, and I've got a few tips in terms of thinking about which one might be right for you. My first question is, are you a big fish uh, in a little pond or do you prefer to be a little fish in a big pond? Because that can really help you to decide the scale of the university you want to go to. So we have campus universities, like the university that I attended, the University of York, and I chose it because I wanted to be a big fish in a little pond. Uh, and at that time, the institution had just 11,000 students. And the best way to describe it, it was almost like a Butlins or a Pontins of university. It was one campus, all students together, which I loved, but others felt was very claustrophobic. If you compare that to somewhere like King's College London or Manchester, you really get that experience of a big city urban uh, lifestyle. So think about what you want to be a part of. The other thing is a bit of advice from my dad. Uh, my dad didn't go to university, but he does a mean deal in uh, buying secondhand cars. And he says, when you go to university, why would you go to a university that you've not visited? Going and visiting universities, having a sort of test drive of a university is really important. Lots of universities will have taster days, open days, and actually you can just visit any day pretty much of the week that you'd like to go and have a look around. So a question that we get asked is, if you lose interest in a subject that you're studying, can you change course once you get to university? 
I've heard that can be really difficult, Anne-Marie. Is it possible? It is possible, but what I always advise students who are in this space is to actually take the time to think about the course they're doing. It can be quite difficult, particularly when people want to transfer onto more competitive courses. So let's say you wanted to transfer into something like law. That's usually quite difficult, actually, in reality. Those courses tend to be very full. So I think if you're having doubts about the subject that you've chosen, the first thing to do is to talk with your course leader, to talk with your personal tutor, to, to really thrash out why you're having those issues and to start to explore options for you when you're at the institution. But I think the best thing to do is to do your research before you go to university to make sure you're choosing the right thing for you. One of the things people often forget is that you can specialise in your subject as well. So often I say to students in their first term, Let's see what happens when you get to the second term. Let's see what happens when you're doing the subjects uh, areas that you're really passionate about and that you're getting to choose because that's when your degree usually really comes to life for you. I think one of the other challenges is sometimes it's not a case that students don't want to study their subject, it's that they start getting some of their first marks back. Uh, and I think often for students who've maybe come out of their high school, uh, maybe have done A-levels and they've got A-grades in their chemistry or their history, and actually in their small pond, uh, it means that they are the best in their subject area. And of course you get to university, which is a much bigger pond, uh, and there's now 150 of you who've all ch chosen to study chemistry. Uh, and actually you can find yourself moving from the top of the pack to the middle of the pack. And I think it's about how you acclimatise to that and actually say, no, I, I am a good student still at this subject. I do still love it. And I think you have to reaffirm that love uh, for your subject and, and really take time to think uh, about a change because often it's actually uh, something you may, you may regret in the longer term if you're not making it for the right reason. Okay, next question. Can you only study a subject at university if you did it at A level? or equivalent qualification, are there certain subjects that you are only allowed to do if you pass your A-level? It's a really good question, but a really complex one as well. Um, so university degree programmes vary. Uh, there are a whole bunch of university degrees, even things like law, um, where actually there are no required subjects. But there are some other subjects where there are quite a significant number of prerequisites. Often these are the sciences. So if you want to study biomedical sciences, quite often universities will ask for either biology or chemistry, and many times both of them. I think the thing that's more, more hard for students to interpret is sometimes in prospectus we will put preferred. Preferred normally means that if you've not taken it, it's not the end of the world, you can still consider applying. But if actually I've spoken to you in year 11 before you started your A-levels or your other qualifications, I would be seriously saying to you, you should be taking this subject. So I think if you're in year 11 and you see preferred, you should read it as you really should consider taking this. If you see it in year 12, then there's probably a bit, a bit more flexibility. So Paul, imagine you're a GCSE student. How would you know which subjects to take? So one of the first things I do is I go online and I look at the Russell Group's Informed Choices Guide. So the Russell Group is a group of leading research intensive universities and we've all pulled our knowledge together to produce this really simple guide. And what it does is it says, so if you've got a rough idea of what you might want to do at university, what subjects are essential, required, and what subjects might be a good basis for your learning. What also it's a really great guide for is if you don't know what you want to do, it helps you put together little packages of subjects which might give you the maximum amount of flexibility. And I think it's a great way of doing that early research. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Uni Talks. In next week's episode, we'll be talking about UCAS applications, interviews, and admissions tests. That's all from our admissions agniants. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Uni Talks podcast. If you found today's podcast interesting or want to find out more about Ian Wilmot's work, then you can watch hundreds of debates and talks on IAI.tv. So I'm going to ask Ian one of these questions that a student who's applying to for a university such as Oxford or Cambridge might be asked. So, why do cats' eyes appear to glow in the dark? It's because light, light is reflected from the retina. So another question that gets asked is, why do lions have manes? Yeah. <laughs> because the female lions like them to have manes. The, lion, the female lions will choose males which have got a mane to be proud of, so the next generation may have slightly more and then the next generation, so that's why they have them. It's interesting, didn't know that. You learn something new every day, don't you? In next week's episode, we'll be joining Stella from London as she finds out how Dungeons and Dragons might help you to become an academic. She will travel to the University of Royal Holloway in London to speak to Professor Robert Eaglestone. Unitalks is brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with The Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to bring philosophy and big ideas to the heart of public life, to be debated, accessed and challenged by everyone. The Brilliant Club were instrumental to this project. They provided management, logistics and ideas. They're an award-winning charity who work to get students from underrepresented backgrounds into top universities. Go check them out. Unitalks is produced by Bridie Addison-Child and Irene Carter at the IAI, with editing on this episode from Bridie. Genevieve Marciniak and Michael Savinsky directed the project, with help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry, Hannah Renton, Jade Hanley and Jordana Knight. Thanks also to Anne-Marie and Paul at King's College London. Thanks for listening.